Well, good morning, good morning. Grab a Bible, grab a seat. Good to be with you this morning. I am Pastor Tim. I've been out of the saddle for a few weeks, so it's good to be back. I want to start out this morning with a question. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Of course, you immediately think, well, what does it mean to be the greatest? What are you talking about? The greatest at what? How about we start with this? Who is the GOAT of the NBA? Greatest of all time. Right? Well, just hang on a second. There are some great players in the running through the, through the years. Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem, Magic, Kobe, right? Lots of people easily in the top ten. It does sort of come down to what you have already guessed is a, a big uh, debate between Jordan or LeBron. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid of the 80s and, and 90s, and so, of course, it will always be Jordan to me. But he's got the stats to back it up, all right? So I looked this up. LeBron is averaging about 27.8 points per game. Jordan was 32.5, blows him out of the water, all right? Uh, LeBron has a 51.8% field goal uh, percentage. Uh, Jordan, what did I, yeah, 51.8. Jordan was 53.1, so he's got him in field goal percentage, right? LeBron currently has four championships and four MVPs. Jordan had six championships and five MVPs, right? So hands down, debate over. Jordan is the greatest of all time in the NBA. He is the greatest. Unless you'll follow me for a moment because I want to I wanna throw something else out there. What if, you, what if there's another position in the NBA in the running? What if the greatest is not LeBron or Jordan? What if this guy is the greatest in the NBA? Right? You're thinking, self, wait a minute, wait a minute. The guy that mops the floor, the guy that mops the sweat off the ground, just bear with me for a second, right? Here's a guy who gets no recognition. We don't know their names, right? Arguably, their job, no offense, but their job takes very little skill, okay? Yet, if you watch these guys, their dedication, their hard work, their selfless service, I think is admirable. And, and if you look at it, because of their hard work, right, the court stays dry and countless slips, falls, and injuries are avoided, right? Without these guys, okay, LeBron and Jordan might have ended up, you know, with twisted ankles and knees and, and bashed up and concussions, but they keep this court dry. So I'm going to go ahead and give a vote to, to the Mop Boys as the GOAT of the NBA. Because if you think about it, and we're going to see that this morning, that, that in reality, if we viewed the least and the last as the greatest, if the least and the last in life possibly should be considered the first and the best. And that's what we're going to read about in Mark chapter 9. Go ahead and flip open your Bibles to Mark 9. We're going to pick up in verse 30. The blue hardback Bibles were on page 845. We're finishing up our series we've been in this summer in Making Disciples. As I said, we're going to go right up to Mark chapter uh, 9. We're going to kind of wrap up our series before Jesus enters into Jerusalem because our focus this summer has been on Jesus as he makes disciples. Jesus calling people to follow him. Jesus is making disciples, inviting his disciples to in turn make disciples. And when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, if you want to be first... You must be last. You mean that must be the guy who shows up early to mop the floor, who stays late to mop the floor, who runs out in the middle of the timeout to, to soak up the sweat of the guys who have the true fame and the true skill and the true prominence, right? That is the first. The one who is truly the greatest is the servant of all. So we're going to wrap up our series this week. Next week will be our final uh, um, lesson 
in the Gospel of Mark. In September, we're going to kick off a series in 1 Samuel. It's an Old Testament book, super exciting narrative, historical account of the history of Israel. So looking forward to launching us Labor Day weekend in an introduction of 1 Samuel, and then the following week we'll kick off in chapter 1. So join us for that. Our life groups will be following along. You'll be discussing all that God's Word is teaching us um, during those small groups during the week. So we're going to pick up in Mark 9, verse 30. Now this account is picking up this story we're going to read is, is right after Jesus had revealed his divine glory on the mountain. He's healed a boy. Now Jesus has left that region and he's going through Galilee, a common place for his ministry where his ministry kicked off. So let me pray for us again and then we will read the word of God together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're here this morning to know you, to seek you, to grow in you. We're here this morning to find hope and forgiveness. We're here this morning to to seek life eternal and life now. And your word brings us that life and that direction and that hope. Your word is truth. And so we submit now to your word. We hear now from your Holy Spirit. And we ask him to lead and guide and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Amen. Amen. So, verse 30, Jesus is going to Galilee for a time of private teaching with his disciples. He's pulling away from the crowds. Remember, he's not interested in simply drawing large crowds, but in making disciples, in training and pouring into a group of followers that will live in obedience, that will carry his message after he is gone from the world. And so in verse 31, for the second time in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. They know he's the Messiah at this point. They've given their lives to him. They're still clueless about what that means. They still have loads of misconceptions. And so Jesus again says to them, and and he's referring to himself in the third person by his favorite messianic title, a title of the Messiah, Son of Man, rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed, arrested, delivered into the hands of men. Speaking there about what we come to find out is the Jewish leaders who originally arrest him, then turn him over to the Roman officials, and the Son of Man will be killed. Jesus tells his disciples, and three days later, he'll rise again. 
Now, now we on this side of the, the cross and the tomb are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Thanks, Jesus, for the prediction. But the disciples are clueless, verse 32. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, not because Jesus is using complicated words, not because they're unintelligent, but because it simply didn't make any sense to them in their theological, cultural, religious context. They, they didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus, what, are you, what do you mean you're going to be delivered into the hands of your enemies? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the greatest of all time? Haven't you come to liberate Israel and be king? Why would you let yourself be killed? Like, let's go run and hide and wait for things to cool down and build an army and come back. Don't go to Jerusalem if you're going to be killed. And then he adds at the end this, this part about after three days you'll be raised. They didn't know what that meant. The first century Jewish mind resurrection was something that would happen at the end of the age. They didn't understand. What do you mean you'll rise? Now look, we, we read earlier in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel... Peter, the first time Jesus had told them this, tried to, to question, even tried to correct Jesus, but it didn't go so well. Remember, he was rebuked, and so now they're afraid to ask Jesus. They're like, I don't even want to ask, right? They're afraid to ask him any clarifying questions for further explanation. They're following Jesus. He's called them. They are his disciples. They've given their lives to him. They're faithful to him up until this point, but they still are not fully aware, not fully understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah. But he's explaining to them. In essence, he's setting his up and and, and saying, as the Messiah, as the greatest, I am the greatest because I'm prepared to make the greatest sacrifice. Jesus is showing his disciples the way, showing them the path that he will walk and that they will walk after him. This is the center of, of, of Jesus' life, of Mark's gospel, of scripture. The center of history is the Messiah, the anointed one, prophesied, and, and foretold about from the time Adam and Eve turned their backs. God said, I will send one to crush the head of the serpent. And through the ages, through the generations, the prophets, the law, the temple, the sacrifices, all whispered and longed and looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come, when God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, God would come down, fully God, fully man, to rescue us, to redeem us out of sin, out of death, out of our bondage to our sinful nature. Out of, out of the destructive end of, of, of eternal death that awaits any man or woman outside of Christ. The Messiah came to fulfill the promise, to reconcile God's people back to himself. And through his death on the cross, our penalty is paid. Through his death on the cross, our sinful nature is put to death. That we can be forgiven, that we can be set free from both the penalty and the power of sin. And through faith in Christ as Messiah, you are born again. Not just your old life canceled out, your record of sin deleted, not just your punishment of eternal death soaked up, but now through the resurrection, we are born again to new life. That your heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. That you can, you can look forward one day to an eternal life in the kingdom of God, and even now you can walk in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, as God himself comes and fills you with resurrection life, fills you with the love of God, the peace of God, the hope of God, through faith in Christ, through, through what Jesus just pro- proclaimed again to his disciples, we have new life. We have hope. We are called sons and daughters of God. We are guaranteed a place in heaven. We now come together as the family, as the church of God, the bride of Christ. To walk amidst the hardships and trials and frustrations and temptations of this life. To walk together as, as God's children. That is our hope. That is, that is what makes Christ great because of his greatest sacrifice. 
That is what we put trust in, and I call and I urge you again this morning to put your trust in that. And if you're struggling to believe, struggling to put faith in Christ, cry out to God and say, give me eyes to see the truth, give me ears to hear the truth, give me, give me courage to put faith, to let go of whatever's holding me back, and to put faith in Christ and Christ alone as the center of my life, that I would follow Him and be a disciple of Him, not of myself or of the world or the false hopes around me. Trust in Christ this morning, the greatest sacrifice our Savior. And so with that message in mind, in in the end of our service, we're going to come to the table. We're going to partake again of the Lord's Supper and feast on this sacrifice. These symbols of of His broken body on the cross and His shed blood on Calvary that bring us life. Through His death, you and I live. Through His great, great sacrifice. He's laying down His life for us. And this frees us to follow him, frees us to have life in the kingdom, but he's also giving us example. As his disciples, we follow in his footsteps. He's showing us the path to greatness. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? We heard a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, we hear these words again from our Savior, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Brothers and sisters, you want to be great? To be great is to be like Jesus, and to be like Jesus is to live a life of sacrifice. You can gain the whole world if you so choose. Some of you can go off, and some of you may succeed in in getting a good chunk of the world. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You want true life, true greatness? Deny yourself. Come after Jesus. Take up your cross, your your own sacrifice, your own self-denial, and follow Jesus. That is greatness. Now, you and I don't sacrifice our life by dying for others we sacrifice our life for living for others by living for others a life of sacrifice for god himself putting him first above all else him and his kingdom a life of sacrifice for your family for your spouse for your children for your unbelieving aunts and uncles and grandparents for for christ's church by giving your life as a sacrifice for the church of god giving your life as a sacrifice to the people around you, to the, to the friends and neighbors and co-workers that don't yet know this hope. A, a life of sacrifice is not a life of dying, it's a life of living in sacrifice through the name and power and presence of Jesus. That's our cause, to, to follow our Lord Jesus in greatness, in sacrifice. Now what's interesting is that the disciples hear all of this, they're, they're still very preoccupied, and, and, and don't point a finger because you and I would be no different, in fact we are no different. They're preoccupied with their own issues. And so in verse 33 they come to Capernaum, and they're, they're in the house there, likely Peter's house, kind of their ministry center in, in Capernaum. And on the way, as they've been traveling, they've been bickering. Now, remember, they're not on a bus or a train, right? They're walking, and as they're walking, they're having this discussion. Now, now keep in mind, remember what I just said. Jesus has just told his 12 closest disciples, here's how all this is going to end. In a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested and, and, and crucified, and then I'll rise again. They're hearing this, but then somehow along the way, they get into a discussion about who's the greatest. It's like, come on, guys. Now, Jesus 
knew there had been a, a heated argument about who was, who was the all-time number one. And so he asked them, hey, uh, what, what were you guys talking about? Right? Now, this is probably similar to when you hear your kids bickering in the back of the van. You catch bits and pieces about it. You sort of know what they're arguing about, right? about who's going like, to get to pick the movie that night or who should have to do the dishes. No, I did it last time. And you know that they're being selfish and prideful. But you stop when you get home and you're like, hey, guys, what were you talking about in the back? Right? Like You want to hear them put it into their own words. And so Jesus does that. And the disciples respond in verse 34 in the way that you and I have all responded when you've been caught with something that you know you should be embarrassed, even ashamed about. Right? They do the whole, like, check your shoelaces are tied, not talk, look away, stay silent. Maybe if I don't answer Jesus for long enough, something else will get me out of this pickle that I'm in. Right? They say nothing. They don't answer him. They're just awkward and uncomfortable because they know, they know that they were just selfishly competing with one another about who is the greatest. And, and they know they've been caught and they're, they're ashamed. They lower their eyes. They know that, that Jesus, particularly in light of what he's just told them, would not want them to be focused on this, to be arguing about who's the greatest. Now look, their argument I think is understandable. Like if I were in that group of disciples, I probably would have been doing the same thing, right? This is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the anointed one. As I said, the one who had been prophesied about for hundreds of years. He's come to fulfill the covenant, to save the world. There's thousands of people pressing in, trying to seek him and hear him, receive healing from him. And this group of 12 is the closest inner circle. They're following the greatest Messiah to ever live, the only savior of the world. His popularity is growing and they are special. They are close. They get to sit with him and eat with him and travel with him. Every day, it's only human nature to wonder, well, amongst the 12, I wonder which one of us is the closest, is his favorite, is the greatest, is the best disciple. And so they're arguing. Now, I I can sort of picture some of the rivalries in the group, and we've seen some of these disciples come out this summer, right? You picture picture Peter for a moment. Guys, come on. What, What are you even talking about? Like, I'm clearly the leader Okay, we're at my house in Capernaum. Why do you think we're here? Right? I'm the only one that has the boldness to speak up and say what you all are thinking. Right? I'm clearly the courageous one of the group. Just stop it. I'm the leader. Right? Then you've got Andrew, Peter's brother. I can imagine him responding. Pete, listen, man. I'm your brother. I know your faults as, as well as I know all the things that are charming about you. Okay, but don't forget this. I was following John the Baptist when you were still fishing on a boat, right? And I was the first one to meet Jesus. In fact, I'm the one that invited you and James and John and everybody else to come follow Jesus. I was the first disciple. So clearly, I am the greatest, right? And you can matter, James and John, okay? Friends of of Peter and Andrew, right? Joined with following Jesus, likely on that exact same day. And, And they're like, guys, guys, we're in the inner circle, right? You remember just a couple days ago, Jesus took us up onto the mountain, right? And his glory appeared like the sun, right? We saw this amazing thing that we're not supposed to talk about, but, but we're going to talk about it so you know that we're the greatest, right? And by the way, we've got the greatest nickname, guys, right? Jesus called us the sons of thunder. Clearly, we are the greatest. And then I can imagine quiet Matthew from the back of the crowd speaking up. Uh, excuse me, guys. Um, I know I was a tax collector and I was an enemy, right? But why do you think Jesus chose me? He chose me as an enemy of Judaism 
And I've had the most radical transformation of any of you. Clearly, I am the greatest. Look at where I came from. And by the way, while you illiterate bunch are off doing who knows what, I'm the one taking notes about everything that Jesus has said and done so all this can be preserved someday. I may not be in the front all the time, but clearly I am the greatest, right? And so they all make their case, and they're bickering and arguing. And I don't know about you, but I can put myself in their shoes. And Jesus, hearing all of this, decides to put an end to it. And so what does he do? In verse 35, he sits everybody down. And he decides to truly teach them something profound and yet so simple. So simple and yet so profound, this principle of God's kingdom. And he says, if anyone wants to be first, to be the greatest, he must be last. You want to be the greatest? Jesus says, be servant of all. If you're here this morning with a heart, and and as with most things, our heart for God is mixed up with with our, our, our broken, fallen human nature, and our good intentions are often mixed up with bad intentions. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, Jesus says, seek to be last. What does it mean to be last? It means you serve others. Listen, greatness in the kingdom of God means you put others ahead of yourself. Greatness means you don't act out of pride or selfish ambition, but in humility you count others more important than yourself. Greatness means you're not just concerned with your own interests, but also the interests of others. Greatness means you don't just love yourself, you love others as yourself. Greatness means you outdo one another in honoring them. Greatness means you display no greater love than by sacrificing your life for your friends. Greatness to Jesus, greatness for those who are disciples of Christ means service, means self-sacrifice, means putting God first, means seeking first the kingdom, means working for the good of others. And as I meditated on this this week, I thought about apple pie. And here's why. My mom loves to bake, loves to cook. I was so spoiled most days when I got home from school and got off the bus and walked home, there was some fresh baked good laying on the counter. Now, now the, 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 the premier, the greatest, the cream of the crop was my mom's apple pie. Something that all five of us, my mom and dad and, and me and my older sister and younger brother, all looked forward to her apple pie. So there was one time she made an apple pie, we all had a slice, but then you get it the second night, right? Because there's, there's, there's leftovers. And so I don't know what happened. I don't know whether somebody was supposed to be like at sports practice and they, they were home and not expected. I don't know if my mom mismeasured, but she cut out the pie on that second night and, and lo and behold, there was only four slices. And we all sort of saw what was going on, right? Like somebody's not getting a slice of this apple pie. And as my mom is handing it out and she all realizes, she says, that's okay, I never liked pie anyway. Now, to this day, we quote that. Because it was like the biggest joke, the biggest, the biggest non-truth, right, that any of us ever heard. Now, we all still took the pie and ate it, right, while my mom sat there without any apple pie, right? But it's one of those things, you can just say that in my family, you know, and we'll say that sometimes. When my mom, to this day, will make a sacrifice or put us ahead of herself, we'll say, yeah, mom, we know you don't really like pie anyway, right? It was just that momentary Symbol, that, that example of what it means to put yourself last, right? To give everybody else the apple pie. I'm not there yet in my spiritual maturity, but I hope to be. The essence of greatness in the kingdom of God is serving others first and putting yourself last. Now, even after this conversation, the disciples still don't get it. Later in chapter 10, 
James and John come up to Jesus and they're asking Jesus for positions of authority in his kingdom. They're like, hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. We want prominent positions in your administration. Look at what Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus again has to clarify for these thick-skulled believers like you and I. Leadership means service. Greatness is sacrifice. Those who are first are last. And this is a universal principle of God's kingdom. And here's what's interesting. Even the secular world has begun to figure this out. Did you know that the top performing CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the most successful, fastest growing companies in America, their CEOs excel in servant leadership? Because arrogant, selfish, demanding, demeaning leaders are rarely successful and flourish in the long term. They may be able to coerce people to follow them in the short term. They may be able to get people in line with threats of punishment, but they often don't achieve lasting long-term success. In in an article in in a secular publication called The Chief Executive said this, Servant leadership is essentially evolving, involves a CEO or company's owner's decision to achieve success for the company and its employees by putting them first, by expecting workers to put customers and vendors first, and by creating a culture of self-sacrifice together for the ultimate good of the entity. Like CEOs of major million-dollar corporations are realizing this is actually true leadership and success. This is true greatness. This is essentially, if you've read... Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, this is essentially his concept of the level five leader. A leader, he says, who displays a powerful mixture of personal humility and indomitable will. They are incredibly ambitious, but listen, their leaders, the leader's ambition is first and foremost for the cause, for the entity, for the organization, for its purpose, and not for themselves. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Tim, if this is a kingdom principle, a kingdom of a principle of following Jesus, why, why does it have application and, and even bearing fruit in the world among secular people? Because God's laws, God's expectations, God's truth, God's character, God's principles, the principles of the kingdom are infused into the fabric of creation. Listen, God's way of doing things makes life better. Whether you're talking about leadership, Sacrifice, sex, money, power, rest. Like how God has ordered his world is fruitful and effective and fulfilling in our lives. And when it comes to greatness, the greatest of all is the servant of all. The servant of all, as Jesus said. Not to be a ruler who exercises authority and lords it in a dominating way. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Brothers, men, I was listening to a podcast recently, and and the Christian leaders in this podcast were advocating that men who want to live out your role as spiritual leaders should stop using the terms uh, servant leader. They said that servant leader has become an excuse for men to be passive and weak and not courageous, to not speak up for truth, to shirk their responsibility as leaders. Listen, 
If you have any of those problems, it's not that you're trying to be a servant leader. The problem is, is our weak hearts. The problem is our, our lazy hearts, our distracted, fearful, disinterested, sinful hearts. And so husbands and fathers, we are called to servant leadership. We are called to be first in our families, and to be first means you put yourself last. To lead in your family means you serve your family. To be great in your family means self-sacrifice. And as we live out and model by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ in our lives, as we seek to live out a Christ-like spirit that is humble, that is proactive, that is courageous, that is strong, that is responsible, that is greatness, just as our Savior Jesus was great. So Jesus goes on in verses 36 and 37 to further make his point. He brings in a, a child. He calls a small child into the, into the teaching time and he picks up this child holding him in his arms and he says, whoever receives and welcomes a little child in my name receives me and welcomes me into their life. And when you receive me, you receive our heavenly father who sent me. Now, now Jesus, you know, certainly the most popular person in, in that region of the world at that time, arguably the, the, even, even from a non-Christian, even from a secular perspective, right? Arguably the most popular, influential person in all of history. Jesus is picking up a child, and you have to understand, right? The children didn't have a particularly high place of value in ancient society. In that society, if you were well-known, if you were popular, or wealthy, prominent, powerful, you didn't spend a lot of time taking care of children. You hired a servant to take care of, of children, right? That was servant's work. But Jesus welcomes this small child. He receives this child, holds this child, cares for the child, displaying humility, displaying true greatness for his disciples. That's what true greatness is. It's sacrifice. It's humility. It's investing in those who seem small. It's caring for those who are weak. It's lifting up those who are lowly. Even if it means that to lift them up, you have to, you have to put them above you in a sense of opportunity. In the sense of honor, this is what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to little children. The kingdom of God belongs to those who welcome little children, who have the faith and the heart of little children. Man, pray, praise God for, for, for Brittany, for Liz, for Ryan, but praise God for the team leaders whose names weren't announced today. Praise God for our, our teachers and helpers that month after month are serving. Praise God for the, for the faithful people that are right now holding our children, our babies in the nursery. Some of them are getting spit up on right now. Thank you, teens, for serving our kids. Thank you, women, for serving our kids. We have what I consider to be a small handful of men. Thank you, men, for serving in children's ministry. I wish there was more brothers who would sacrifice one Sunday a month to go back there and, and teach our kids. It's a place of honor to invest in the small and to care for the weak. Greatness is service. It's humility. It's putting yourself last. And so again, I hope by God's grace we are soaking this in. We are receiving this. We are understanding true strength and true greatness and true prominence. But the disciples, they don't have the, the advantage of being able to look back and, and to read it. And so they're still not getting it. Right? And their competitive nature, their desire for greatness within themselves is pushing against this concept. That's what caused the argument amongst them, and that's what causes John's next question in verse 38. 
Like Jesus is literally in the midst of explaining this idea of greatness. And John says, teacher, we saw someone outside of our group. He was casting out a demon. He was doing it in your name. And so we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So essentially, John is like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I get it. Yeah, be last, be a servant. But clearly, we're greater than this guy, right? Like, clearly, this guy must be stopped. He's not great. Now, what, what's the problem with the guy that, that John is asking about in verse 38? What's the problem he's addressing? I mean, the, 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 the guy is, is casting out an evil spirit. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. What does John say in verse 38? We tried to stop him because, because what? Because he was not following us. Notice it doesn't say he was not following you. He was not following us. He's doing his work in the name of Jesus. But John doesn't like it because he's not in their group. And so rather than acting out of humble service, John, his question and his motive is acting out of selfish pride. He's viewing this other disciple with a jealous, competitive spirit. And he's essentially viewing this man as an opponent. He's got to be stopped. He's not one of us. He's not in our group. But again, he's doing good work. He's, he's pushing back darkness. He's casting out demonic spirits. He's doing it in the name of Jesus, assuming in, the, in faith in the power of Jesus. Now again, if you look at things in the, in the context and the climate of the day, it is easy to understand. First century Judaism, the religion of the Old Testament, the, the religion of, of the covenant of Yahweh, was extremely sectarian. There was loads of division at that time. And that's what these disciples are a part of. Every group has their own way of reading the Torah, following Yahweh. You have the Sadducees. We read about them in the New Testament. The Sadducees were the rich and powerful. They controlled the temple in Jerusalem. Then you got the Pharisees. They didn't get along. The Pharisees were the rule followers. And they held sway with the common people. They ran things in the local synagogues. Then you had a group known as the Essenes. They were the pious, devoted people who withdrew from society to find holiness, that you had the zealots, the political activists, they were, they were in a revolution against the Roman government. You had at least four main sections in first century Judaism that were divided, that did not like each other, that tried to stop each other. Lots of judgment and competition going on. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to anything that we experience or that you can identify with in our 21st century culture, but that's the context in which John asks his question. And John's now like, there's another group we got to stop this other group, right? Now, I'm not saying competition is all bad, right? I don't know why. I, I, I lost Mark. But thank you, Mark, for coaching and leading our, our softball team, right? Great season, great fellowship. You guys uh, didn't, didn't bring it home at the championship game, but, but thank God that you had fun and you did well, right? There, there's, a, there's a good godly form of competition, but what John is talking about usually means that when... You win, it's because somebody else loses, right? You are elevated, why? Because somebody else gets pushed down. And so Jesus answers John in verses 39 and 40. Look there. Jesus says, don't try to stop someone like him. Because no one can do a mighty work in my name and then soon afterwards speak evil of me. Listen, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, if someone is truly, sincerely doing the mighty work of God in the name of Jesus, then he is for Jesus. Someone acting in the power of Christ is not going to soon tear down the name of Christ. Now, I guess Jesus is a realist. He puts in he's not going to soon tear down the name of Christ because sadly some do at some point fall away just because they've done work for the kingdom. 
today, sadly, does not mean it, it will remain that way. He goes on in verse 41 to say, if anyone, someone in your group or tradition, or someone who's not from your group or your circle, if someone shows you kindness with a cold cup of water because you belong to Christ, that person is for me, Jesus says, and he will not lose his heavenly reward. Friends, listen. If someone is not against Christ, then they are for us, not our opponent. Now, there are opponents of Christ. There are those who deny the name of Jesus, who reject his power, who rebel against his authority, who persecute his church. There are things such as cults and false religions and heretics and false prophets. There are wolves in sheep's clothing who distort the truth and promote false gospels. That's not what Jesus is talking about here in this context. He's talking about Christians trying to restrict other Christians being critical, trying to stop. Listen, if you have a pastime of being critical of other Christians, that is a terrible pastime. Find something else to do. Our opponents are not other Christians from other traditions or other denominations or other streams of faith who are still walking in faith in Christ, still upholding the true gospel. As you know, we planted this church in the YMCA 16 years ago, and there's a network and, and resources and uh, people planting churches in YMCAs all over the country. We joined Acts 29 with an effort to be an active church planting church. We hope to see churches planted uh, through our prayers, through our funding, through our training and resources, some of you being sent out here in your county, all over the nation. And so when the YMCA announced, I think it's the old Spring Grove Elementary School that the Y bought. You may not have even known this. It's going to become a new branch of the YMCA in Spring Grove. And I immediately started getting excited, right? I drive Pastor Matt crazy because I'm always coming up with new ideas and new projects and new things to start and begin and expand, right? And I'm like, we should plant a church in the YMCA that's going to be in the new Spring Grove because we got families in Spring Grove and Hanover and Seven Valleys. Like, we could plant a church there. And then my bubble was burst when I was in a meeting with some other folks from the YMCA and I found out that there's a church in York who knows the president of the, of the York County YMCA is already in discussions, already basically making plans to plant a church in the new Spring Grove branch of the YMCA. And I was like, are you serious? I wanted to plant a church there. I wanted that to be an Acts 29 church. And so the Lord had to deal with my heart, and I had to wrestle with him a little bit. And, and now this week, I have a meeting with the pastor of this church in York to discuss with him their plans to plant a church. And so long as they're standing on the authority of God's word and proclaiming the true gospel, I'm going to do whatever I can to help, to encourage, to support, to give ideas, to help partner with them, to plant a gospel-preaching congregation in Spring Grove. The Apostle Paul, as you read the letter that he writes to the Philippians, he's in jail. And he says to the church in Philippi that, that there are some that are preaching Christ that have bad motives, that are, that are preaching Christ out of rivalry, he says. And, and these other people see Paul as their opponent. And so they're trying to cause more suffering to Paul and you know his response to these rivals who see him as an opponent? He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will 
rejoice. Friends, listen, if Christ is proclaimed, we're called to rejoice because whoever is not against us is for us in the name of Jesus. Here's a little bit about what that looks like here at Living Hope. The elders of Living Hope, we care about Christ and the gospel. We care about biblical truth. We care about doctrine, right? We're going to dig deep into difficult doctrinal issues. We're going to study. We're going to defend. We're going to teach our understanding of correct biblical doctrine. We take clear positions in our expanded doctrinal statement about difficult issues. Why? Because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and it all matters and it's all relevant. The elders here at Living Hope stand in what's called the Reformed tradition. We believe that God sovereignly elects those who believe, but our opponents are not Arminians. We hold to covenant theology. We believe that there's one unified plan in the Old and New Testament for Israel and the church, but our opponents are not the dispensationalists. The elders of Living Hope are continuationists. That means we believe the continuing, ongoing, miraculous, and prophetic work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church But our opponents are not cessationists. We're complementarians. As I alluded to earlier, that means we believe in the spiritual headship of men in the home and in the church. But our opponents are not egalitarians. The greatest opponent of Christ and the church is evil itself, evil himself. What has traditionally been categorized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is our opponent. That is what opposes Christ and his church. The devil, the ultimate persecutor, the liar, the accuser of Christians. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of the enemy. Our own flesh is often our greatest opponent. Our own sinful desires, our own distraction and discouragement and temptations of the world that distract us from truly living for Christ, proclaiming Christ, sharing Christ. The world, that's the fallen, unbelieving, sinful aspect of the world. Those who deny and denounce and undermine and slander and persecute Christ in his church. It's not other Christians The greatest opponent that you and I have is the devil, is evil itself, is the sin that still lurks in us. See, Jesus is the greatest because he made the greatest sacrifice, because he freed us from our sinful nature. He rescued us from the grip of the devil himself. He's taken us out of the world and transferred us into the kingdom of God. He is the greatest because he made the greatest sacrifice for you and I. And he now calls and says to us, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, you must be the last. You must be the servant of all because greatness means service, humility, self-sacrifice, putting God first, seeking first the kingdom of God, working for the good of others in reflection of Christ, empowered by Christ for the honor and glory of Christ. And Jesus says to each of you in this room with a heart to follow God, to know God, to have hope and fulfillment in this life, to have eternity in the next, Jesus says, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 